Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we've covered a lot of spooky ground so far this October, from serial killers to sorcerers to spiritual mediums and the ghosts they talk to. And so now it's time for us to enter the world of the spooky science lab. You probably have some experience with this if you've ever been to a haunted house and you've gone into that section where they have like the bowls full of grapes that are like, well, yeah, they're like eyeballs or something and you stick your hand in them. (laughs) Pasta needles. A mad scientist pulling out the sausage links. Oh. Out of the, you've never seen that? <laughs> no, I've actually done a haunted house kind of like that myself. We did the... Like you created it? Yeah, in my friend's basement, we had the grape eyeballs and the spaghetti and everything. Impressive. The best was the skeleton in the thump pump. <laughs> so in the spooky science lab, that's where these so-called mad scientist types explore and push the very limits of what it means to be human and sometimes end up playing God in the process. So a little bit more serious than your average haunted house scenario. For sure. Of course, one of the most famous stories that exemplifies this is Frankenstein, a novel by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, published in 1818. And generally, just basics here, it's about a scientist named Victor Frankenstein who attempts to create artificial life by piecing together dead body parts and administering some sort of life spark. He ends up, though, creating a monster. And the story has been adapted several times for film, stage, and TV productions. I'm sure everyone's probably seen some sort of rendition of it. Well, and just a couple years ago, Katie and I talked about Mary Shelley's experience in coming up with the story. It involved a stay at Lord Byron's villa in Switzerland, during which bad weather kept uh, the small group of friends and writers homebound. And uh, Byron ended up issuing a ghost story writing contest challenge. And the author, Mary Wollstonecraft, Shelley later said that the idea for Frankenstein came to her in a dream. Here's specifically what she said. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an an easy, half vital motion. Frightful it must be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. Yeah, so as you guys pointed out, It's quite likely that the idea was influenced not just by a dream, but by actual talk of scientific experiments that were going on in the early 1800s. Late night talks. But whose experiments were they talking about? Well, it turns out that there were many scientists during this period whose work involved reanimating dead animals and even humans. More than one of them has gotten credit for being the inspiration for Shelley's Dr. Frankenstein over the years. So we're going to take a look at a couple, but particularly Giovanni Aldini. Aldini started experimenting with human corpses in the early 1800s, and his most famous experiment had many people thinking, well, maybe you can actually bring someone back to life. And his experiments became widely known, and they were almost like performances. Really 
scary, disturbing performances. Gory performances. <laughs> and he ultimately, however, made some concrete contributions to medical science through these. But before we get into all that, we should talk about Aldini's inspiration, his uncle, Luigi Galvani, whose discovery kind of kicked off this whole Frankenstein era. Exactly. So Luigi Galvani was born in Bologna, Italy in 1737 and studied medicine in the 1750s according to his father's wishes. So he ended up becoming a lecturer in anatomy at the University of Bologna and a professor of obstetrics at the separate Institute of Arts and Sciences by the early 1760s. So a pretty good, solid career. And according to Encyclopedia Britannica, his early research was in the area of comparative anatomy. So the structure of the renal tubules, nasal mucosa in the middle ear, stuff like that. Throughout the 1770s, though, he started to get more and more interested in physiology, specifically electrophysiology, or the study of the electrical aspects of physiological phenomena. Yeah, so he got an electrostatic machine and a Leiden jar, which was a device used to store static electricity, and he started to dabble in muscular stimulation using electricity. In 1786, Galvani found that touching a frog's nerves with a metal instrument during a thunderstorm made the frog's muscles contract, so it twitched. So he concluded that electricity was the cause of the twitching, and he hypothesized, now we know incorrectly, that it came from the frog's muscles and nerve tissue. He did more experiments of this kind, for example, using a scalpel touched to a nerve while the electrostatic machine was activated, and he also got the same result without the use of the machine. So he hung a copper hook from an iron railing and pressed the hook to the frog's spinal cord, and it also moved um, because of that contact. So he published a paper in 1791 called Commentary of the Effect of Electricity on Muscular Motion, in which he concluded that animal tissue contained this innate force called animal electricity. And in this theory of his, he thought that the brain secreted this electric fluid, which the nerves carried to the muscles, and then that fluid acted as a stimulus for the muscles. And Galvani's views were pretty accepted, generally accepted, at least by a lot of scientists. But physicist Alessandro Volta did not accept these ideas. He rejected the idea of animal electricity and said that the source of electricity or stimulus in Galvani's experiments had been the use of two dissimilar metals. And this caused a bit of controversy, but Galvani didn't have much time to debate with Volta because in the 1790s, Galvani refused to swear allegiance to Napoleon's new republic. So he lost his faculty position and his salary, and he ended up moving into the old Galvani home with his brother, and he died there at the age of 61 in 1798. The debate was not over, however. No, Galvani's work and this idea of animal electricity or galvanism didn't just fade away. Volta used concepts from Galvani's experiments, specifically the electricity created by two dissimilar metals thing, to create his electric pile or voltaic pile, basically a battery, a sort of primitive battery that could provide a source of constant current electricity. Volta, however, still fundamentally disagreed with the idea of animal electricity. And as we mentioned, this kicked off a huge debate among intellectuals at the time. Even in life, Galvani himself, though, was too reserved to really get involved in all of that. Get in the fray. Exactly. He was a little more soft-spoken than that. But his somewhat spunkier nephew, Giovanni Aldini, stepped in and kind of took up the torch for defending galvanism. 
Now, Aldini was born in Bologna on April 16th, 1762, and he had also chosen a scientific career path. He studied physics at the University of Bologna, and after graduating in 1782, he became a research assistant for his uncle and joined in on those frog experiments. When what became known as the Galvani-Volta controversy kicked off, Aldini became really active in defense of his uncle's ideas. So here's just a few examples of some of the things that he did. He published responses to Volta's criticisms, sometimes in the form of supplements to his uncle's original commentary. He did experiments to demonstrate that the muscular contraction in frogs can be obtained with one metal only. Volta, just as an aside, he argued here that the metal used, which was mercury, was probably contaminated and actually did contain traces of another metal, and that's why Aldini's experiment worked. But the other thing that Aldini did is that he worked with Galvani in a series of experiments in which no metal was used at all. So they just used nerves touched to muscle and achieved muscle contraction that way. After Galvani died in 1798, Aldini accepted the Bologna University Chair in Physics, which came complete with a pretty hefty teaching load, but that didn't stop him from pursuing his work in galvanism. Not at all. He founded the first Galvanic Society in Bologna, and then he started experimenting on warm-blooded animals, so really taken it up a notch from frogs, worked on birds and calves and oxen. And according to a 2004 article by André Parent in the Canadian Journal of Neurological Sciences, in one notable experiment involving an ox, Aldini applied direct electrical current to different parts of an ox brain to determine different brain regions sensitivity to galvanism. And this really sparked an interest in using galvanism as a therapeutic tool, you know, something more than just a neat experiment with twitching frog legs. However, to test this out, Aldini needed to experiment with using electricity on human cadavers. But at the time, it was illegal to exhume bodies from graves. So when he conducted these experiments in January and February of 1802, he used the bodies of three criminals who'd been killed by decapitation. Ironically, he ended up using a voltaic pile to create the electric current. Quirk of history. Yeah. And he did the experiment in a large public area located near Bologna's Palace of Justice. This is where the executions had taken place. And he applied the electricity to different parts of the heads and the bodies and was able to produce muscular contractions, confirming the frog experiments. After this, Aldini went on kind of a world tour throughout Europe doing these sorts of experiments as demonstrations. They were almost like shows, I mean, theatrical spectacles of a sort. And Aldini became a really skilled performer in these. In one before the Royal College of Surgeons in London, for example, he cut the head off a dog and made the current from a strong battery go through it. According to an eyewitness account in the June-July issue of History Magazine, this caused, quote, the dog's jaws to open, the teeth to chatter, the eyes to roll in their sockets. One would almost believe the dog's head was alive again. And like you said, he really did go on a tour of Europe. He went to several European universities. While in Paris, he also worked a little more on his electroconvulsive therapies. But in early 1803, Aldini returned to London, where his experiments were very well attended. And not just by scientists and surgeons and curious people, but by gentlemen, dukes, and even the Prince of Wales came out to, to see one of these shows. Yeah, but- it's interesting. It almost became 
sort of a way to make this idea, these scientific ideas, more palatable to the general public. Which is kind of, they sound so <laughs> the opposite of palatable to yep. us now. But it is interesting to think of the highest classes coming out to see a dog decapitated and then these pretty horrific scientific experiments take place. But Aldini's most famous demonstration took place on January 17th, 1803 at the Royal College of Surgeons. And the subject Aldini experimented on in this case was the 26-year-old criminal George Foster, who had just been hanged at Newgate Prison in London for murdering his wife and child. And according to that History Magazine article Dublina just mentioned, Aldini and his assistants actually handed out posters beforehand that said he was was going to attempt to, quote, reanimate a corpse in front of a live audience. If that didn't get people in the door, I don't know what would. Before starting the experiment, he asked for a physician to volunteer to come up and confirm that the body was dead. So it almost sounds it sounds very... Like a magic show? Like a magic show. Very performance-like. And to supply the electric current, Aldini used what was essentially a very large battery connected to conducting rods. And when the rods were applied to Foster's mouth and ear, Aldini said that, quote, the job began to quiver. The adjoining muscles were horribly contorted and the left eye actually opened. Mm. So, of course, the audience was pretty freaked out at this point. They gasped, but they hadn't even reached the best part yet or the worst, depending on your point of view. That came when Aldini touched the rods to the criminal's rectum, which caused the whole body to convulse. The arms began to punch the air as if in fury. The legs kicked and the back arched violently, almost as if it were taking a deep breath. It's pretty creepy sounding. So Aldini said the movements were, quote, so much increased as almost to give an appearance of reanimation. So almost like his promise to reanimate a corpse was coming true. This was reported in detail in the Times a few days later, and it really made a big impression, as you can imagine, on both scientists and regular people. According to Perron's article, a lot of people really thought that electricity might be that long-sought vital force, then maybe this guy had finally figured it out. Aldini received the Royal Society's Copley Medal, its highest honor for his work. And just an interesting side note here, apparently the London police had sort of a plan in this for this event. They did plan to re-execute Foster if he was in fact brought back to life. Just in case. Just in case. <laughs> he wasn't going to get out of it. But Aldini said later in a published account that his goal wasn't actually to reanimate the corpse. He was really trying to demonstrate how galvanism might be useful in reviving drowning victims that suffered from asphyxiation. He considered Foster, the hanged criminal, a classic case of asphyxiation. So this makes me wonder a little bit about that point before about Aldini and his assistants handing out posters saying that they were going to attempt to reanimate a corpse. Because if that wasn't his intention, then why would they hand him out? So maybe there's some... Well, you have what you say before the show and what you say after the show. And after the show, Aldini also, as we alluded to before, explored other medical applications for galvanism, including treating mental disorders. One apparently successful test case, according to that Canadian Journal of Neurological Sciences article that we mentioned, involved a 27-year-old farmer named Luigi Lanzarini, who was suffering from melancholy madness, which was basically major depression. So to treat him... 
Aldini delivered shocks from a voltaic pile to Lanzarini's shaved head. He started out with weak, a weak voltaic pile and made it increasingly stronger as the treatments progressed. And just as an aside, he actually tried this out on himself first before he tried it on his patient. So, wow. Yeah. According to Aldini's account of this experiment, Lanzarini's mood improved progressively until he was supposedly cured after several weeks. Feldini's treatment of Lanzarini inspired the electroconvulsive therapies that are still used today. And now he's considered the father of electroshock therapy. Although he was never able to restart a heart himself, his work also seems to have had some kind of direct inspiration for cardiac electrical stimulation. I mean, that was sort of the first thing I thought of when I was reading about these experiments with the dead criminals and their twitching and moving and um, the guy's back arching. I mean, it seemed not too, too far removed from given a shock to a heart that's just stopped and the person's not completely out yet. Yeah, he was never able to restart one, maybe because of the distance or the amount of time that had lapsed between the time that the criminal was executed and the time that he was doing the experiment. Well, and if you're missing a head, it's not going to help much. That's very true, but uh, it was always a big disappointment of his. During the latter part of his career, though, Aldini really focused a lot less on biology. He, for example, tried to improve the construction and illumination of lighthouses. He also explored the use of asbestos fibers to improve firefighting. He developed new hydraulic lever systems, and he invented new ways to light streets and buildings, including La Scala, Milan's opera house. And I have to wonder if any inspiration from that came from his own experience, essentially as a theatrical performer in the science realm. Oh, I didn't think of that. That's a good point. So Aldini was made a knight of the Napoleonic Order of the Iron Crown for his scientific contributions. And in 1807, he became a counselor of the state of Milan. And he died January 17th, 1834, at the age of 72, and left behind money to found a school of physics and chemistry for the artisans of Bologna. I think that's interesting. It is physics and chemistry, biology, Not so much. Well, physics was his major, I guess, when he studied. So maybe it makes sense along those lines. But besides leading to a couple of medical innovations, Aldini's experiments with galvanism had another effect. They started a kind of electro-quackery at the time. Suddenly, everybody wanted to reanimate the dead. And that's probably why when you talk about inspirations for Frankenstein, a lot of names get thrown around. One, for example, is Carl August Weinhold. And what he's known for is these horrifying experiments in which he scooped out a cat's brains and spinal cord and filled the cavities with silver and zinc. He said that the cats would regain a pulse and become animated again for a short time. I think his words were something like they bounded around for several minutes or something like that. Another person who's often associated with the Frankenstein myth is Andrew Ura, who was another scientist who did experiments with the corpse of a hanged criminal. But these occurred closer to the time that Shelley actually published her novel. And a link between Shelley's husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Aldini's famous uncle suggests she may have actually known of Aldini's experiments. Apparently, Percy Bysshe Shelley, when he was a schoolboy, had been mentored by a retired Scottish scientist named John Lind. Lind had a passionate interest in Galvani's work and in the 1790s or so became the first British scientist to repeat the frog experiments. So that's one link. 
Also, according to an article by Charles J. Thompson in the Journal of Chemical Education, scientist Sir Humphrey Davy is the one who invited Aldini to do his famous 1803 presentation. So Percy would have only been 11 at that time, and Mary Wollstonecraft would have only been six. But years later, Davy did become part of their literary and social circle, so they may have heard of Aldini's experiments that way. It's not definitive proof, of course, but it's something to ponder anyway. Well, and I have to imagine that after a spectacle like you would see at one of Aldini's shows, people would talk about that for a long time. It wouldn't just be news that was in and out of the headlines. It seems like something that would come up, maybe not around the dinner table, but just when you're having a chat, especially with with somebody who would have known Aldini. Well, it was something that Percy Shelley was really interested in throughout his lifetime, too. I guess that Lind had had a pretty big influence on him. And I've even read stories that say, that when their family cat died, he tried to reanimate it with electric jolts. He wasn't successful, of course, but there you have it. On the surface, I have to say this story is uh, really... uh, Endowing something with life really seems like it should be a positive thing, but it's so creepy. It's so scary. In practice. I I wonder, too, I mean, this the details are horrifying on their own, but I wonder how much of our repulsion from that does come from Frankenstein. You know, we do know the terrible things that can happen, and we have Mary Shelley's depiction of reanimating life, which is terrible. You know, getting old parts from dead people and stitching them together. Nothing is appealing about it, and it's not at all like like what you say, it, it does seem like reanimating life should be something positive. Instead, it's it's repulsive. Yeah, well, I think even more than just the practice of doing it, it's like that moral question out there of should we be doing this that makes it really sinister. So, so yeah, make yourself a cup of tea and um, break out Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and maybe think these things over, especially if it's a dark and stormy night. And if you finish that great read and you have some more ideas for spooky or scientific or both podcasts for us, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We love to do them. And even though October is almost over, we will always have a place in our hearts for scary podcasts. We love scary podcasts. We do. uh, We have one more announcement. We have been nominated by you guys for a podcast award in the education category. So if you like us, you can go vote for us now until October 27th. You can vote every day, but I guess you're running out of time by the time you actually hear this. You can vote by going to podcastawards.com and yeah, we will be so grateful for your boots. We're also on social media. You can say hello to us there. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Mist in History. And if you want to find out a little bit more about the topics discussed on this podcast, we actually have a great new article by Robert Lamb called How Frankenstein's Monster Works. And science editor Allison Loudermilk told me she described this article as very cerebral. So go check it out by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 